Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Amanda Carpenter in 2015 when we both began as commentators at CNN at the beginning of the 2015 presidential race. She was a journalist who had taken a a break from it to uh, work on Capitol Hill for, among others, Ted Cruz, and now was commenting on the evolving presidential landscape, which became a lot more challenging from a conservative standpoint and a liberal standpoint when Donald Trump became the nominee of the Republican Party. She recently wrote a book called Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us. We sat down this week at the Institute of Politics where Amanda has been a visiting fellow to talk about her book, The President, The Republican Party, and her journey as a conservative. Amanda Carpenter, welcome. Good hey, to, thank you. Good to see you. And well, thank you for being at the Institute of Politics. You've been a splendid visiting fellow here and a, a great presence. Um, Montrose, Michigan. Yes, that's my hometown. Population uh, 1,657. You do your research today. for these interviews. Yeah. So, uh, but tell <laughs> Which me. Which is in Michigan, not far from here. Well, about a probably four hour drive. Near Flint. Yes, right outside of Flint. Upriver from the water contamination. They must be, uh, they must be reeling today with these announcements by GM, huh? No, I don't think so. Because when I was growing up there, the jobs were already gone. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the dads in my town has some affiliation with GM. So I graduated from high school in 2000. By then, the jobs were gone. Flint was already a sinkhole. You didn't go there. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a small farm town outside of Flint. I, I wasn't allowed to go to the mall in Flint. I don't think I went there until I got my driver's license when I was 16. <laughs> and so... So what, know, did people Romney, do, what, what did people do in Montrose? A lot of healthcare, service sector kind of things. Um, you be a teacher, you work at the hospital. Your mom That's was a it. nurse. Uh, yeah, she works in medical billing. Mm-hmm. So she had been a nurse, uh, moved over to billing. She works at the Flint Hospital today. She deals with uh, bringing people in to be residents. Um, a lot of people from foreign countries that are coming in to be doctors, do their residency in Flint. And so, yeah. Um, I don't go back a lot, to be honest. Um, she raised you alone? We're getting right in the biography, aren't we? Um, yes, my parents... I haven't seen my dad since I was 13. And I don't want to get into it because if I talk about it publicly, it'd probably bum her out. Um, but yeah, mostly she raised me and my brothers. And like a lot of families, people deal with drug addiction, not through her, but through other people 
she had met and been romantic with. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't go back too much. They come visit me and it's a happier experience. Yeah. Yeah. So what I discern from this, and I'll try and navigate around yeah. those things that you don't <laughs> want to talk about, is that it was challenging for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people ask me about how did you get involved in politics? And I tell people I never expected that because I was a jock in high school. That was my way to get out of Dodge. You know, a lot of kids that have family issues, you find a way to work around it. And my way was to go to sports camp. And mm-hmm. I was a softball pitcher and I loved it. And I just threw myself into it and got to college on a sports scholarship in northern Indiana, a small school called Tri-State, which has now been renamed and bulldozed into something else called Trine. Um, and so I went to school there. I picked the school because it was as far as my car could go, which is three hours down the road. Mm-hmm. And I because you want to get away. Yeah, yes. And I did that in my freshman year. Uh, there was two pitchers ahead of me. One girl got pregnant. The other pitcher. The other one dislocated her shoulder, sliding into second base during spring break, which is totally stupid. So I pitched every game my freshman year. Yeah. But you can't do that for too long. You 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 actually set an NAIA record. You are doing your research <laughs> for the most innings pitched. Yes, which which is yeah, that's which is good great and for bad. Record, but it's not good for not longevity. Not good for your arm. Yeah. No. And so I, I quickly realized my sophomore year that this I can't do this. I wanted to maybe do. I thought I'd be a sports writer. I thought that's how I'd parlay it. I would coach you like softball. Writing? Yes, I always? I always had the writing bug. I always loved reading and writing, but I never knew how to do anything beyond sports. And so, of course, like, okay, maybe I'll just be a sports writer for a local newspaper, and that would be great. I'd love to do that and maybe coach softball pitching on the side because those are the things I knew and I was good at. And then so my freshman year, I destroyed all the cartilage in my shoulder. I still can't carry a bag on my left shoulder to this really? day. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. And, so some coach – has to wear the jacket for that. Yeah, I think my my I think my high school softball coaches still want to kill her for this. <laughs> yeah. But um but it it all worked out because through that I realized I still want to do something competitive. And how do you do something competitive once your body is sort of useless? Debate. Yes. You got it. And so <laughs> but, I randomly so let me, had let me stop yeah, for a second. Rewind here. the tape. Yeah, but um but tell me why competition was so attractive to you i don't know i think there's i just i've always been attracted to pressure situations and i think that's what attracted me to being a softball pitcher to have the ball and sort of be in control of the game people say why do you like softball i said well i I didn't like it if i had to bat or play the field i i would have never done it it would have been terrible who wants to do that but you know it was great i just i love pitching and I think it was because you could be in control of that situation. If you were a, if if you were a kind of faux shrink, you would say if you can't control. Diagnose me. Go ahead. If you can't control a lot of <laughs> yeah. other things in your life. Uh huh. At least you can control. You can you can get into. It's position. better than an eating disorder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is how. So you had a pitching like disorder. Huh? Yeah. You just had to do it all the time. Yeah, and I just ruined my shoulder. Yeah. Um. And so I, I had a uh, writing teacher because I was interested in writing, but I thought it would be sports writing. And through that process... What did you like about writing? Did you read a lot? or? I Yeah, I was always an avid reader. But I also was attracted to writing because like a, a lot of people think it's hard and the hard things were attractive. But also, 
I don't know when I learned this. I think in high school, but like once you put things down on paper, people will pay attention to what you have to say more. Mm-hmm. There's something very magical about just putting something on paper and putting it out there. Suddenly you could tell something, you know, randomly and cry your heart to somebody, but until you write it down, it kind of doesn't matter. It's also uh, a good way to clarify your own thoughts. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I find, you know, it's it's easier to articulate arguments when you've written them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I want to just go back for one second. You, your brother w- joined the Marines. He did. When he was 17, he turned 18 in boot camp. So uh-huh. that's how he got out. And <laughs> did he end up ser- do, serving overseas? He did. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it, it was a largely good experience for him, except for when I was in college, he came home. He did his four years. He saw some hard things, and he had some friends um, pass away under hard circumstances that he witnessed, which is hard. But the hardest thing was that he came home, and he started breaking out in these weird sores all over his body. And I was, I was a junior. I was at Ball State by then, and my mom said, "You know, Matt, we don't know what's wrong with him, but he's in the. We have him in the burn unit on charity care." in the hospital where she works. Nobody knows what's wrong with him. It might be a blood-eating disease. We Nobody knew what it was. And the VA would not help him because he couldn't prove it as service-connected, whatever was wrong with him. He mm-hmm. had been training to be an EMT at the time, so they're like, oh, you picked up some weird superbug. We don't know what it is. But it didn't get better, and these sores broke out in huge boils, and they would not heal. So to the point where he was in a burn unit to try to control the infections. And it turned out what he got was a disease called leishmaniasis, which is a third world disease. Some people call it the Baghdad boil. So some Marines in Michigan and Texas who go to these places have gotten it. You get bitten by an infected sand fly and it's a blood disease. Mm -hmm. And it takes six months to a year to materialize. And then it comes up in your body, huge sores. And some of the treatment is outlawed by the FDA because it's a third world disease. We don't have it here. And so he had to, he, he li- almost died um, had he not been in that unit just preventing the infection. And he was sidelined probably eight months. My mom had to take time off to take care of it, to change the wounds because it was all over. If you see him now, you would think that he got hit with IEDs. People think he got hit with IEDs. Um, so he's and, still all scarred from it, huh? Completely. Not what? on his face. Some people got in there. I mean, he's a good looking guy. Um, he's great now. He has a kid. He's married. He's great. But that was the VA. I had. You've you've written a lot about the mm-hmm. VA. Is yeah, this, is this part, why? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. There was no doubt where he got this disease. It doesn't exist in the United States, yeah. and they wouldn't help them. How many? Do you have any idea how many veterans were uh, affected by this? I, you know, I don't have a number. I because I tracked it down because I was. When I was working in the Washington Times, I was petitioning, you know, our congressperson there, Dale Kildy, can you please look into the open a case to try to get to the VA? Because we know what this is, but the bureaucracy doesn't catch up. Did they ultimately assume responsibility for it? No, my mom, he was on charity care. Nobody. So even after it was identified as something that he obviously got there. Yep. It's, yeah. Because he was treated and he was back home and it's over. Mm. It was over before anything could happen. And... You know, he was on, there's a charity care system where they have a fund and, you know, if the people at the hospital feel sorry enough for you, they'll pay for it. And that's what happened. And yeah. I think, you know, his family's in TRICARE now, but for the worst of it, they weren't there for him. Yeah. 
Good argument for universal health care. Against, against. <laughs> no, that, I mean, but part of the thing, the VA system is universal health care. Kind of. For VAs, yeah. and they don't care that, it doesn't work for the veterans. Yeah. You know, and that's why I'm kind of passionate. One of the good things Trump has done is try to put them on a voucher system where they can go somewhere and just like, here's your money at least. Mm-hmm. You don't have to petition the VA and prove every little thing you got with service connected before they do anything. I mean, he very well could have died. If my mom didn't have the connections at the hospital because she happens to work there, if he was on his own, I he yeah, he probably would have died. Yeah. But if you – I don't want to get into this uh, discussion right this at this point in this yeah. conversation, but if he were – if we had a system like they have, for example, in Canada, he could walk in – and get treated, uh, no questions asked. Yeah, there's always utopia. I mean, I feel like this is a I, little bit like I'm not talking about like utopia. Little... I'm talking about Canada. <sighs> yeah, but we don't have that here. And if, mm-hmm. if we don't take that's, care that's of our veterans... Point, yeah. No, but we should are, take care of... Uh, yeah. Everybody should have... I mean, you yeah, should... Yeah, we all want health... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We all want to get to the system where people get care. Right. How you do that is the question. Right. Okay, so we can reserve that for yeah. later. Let's get back to uh, uh, you competitive Amanda. Okay. And uh, you went, you, you transferred to Ball State. Yep. And is that where your debating began? Or? Yeah, well, so when I was in... At my first oh, I'm college. matter of David Letterman, we should. Play. I know. Yeah. He built a beautiful communications building. Yeah. Um, I randomly had a writing teacher who had coached debate at Ball State in, you know, freshman program. And he just said, you know, he just planted the buck. It was just one of those meetings where he said, you know, I used to coach debate at Ball State. You would have been a great student to have there. You know, and I was like, oh, I never thought about that. I should, you know, I should look into that. And so once softball kind of washed up and I realized the school didn't have any, there just wasn't a lot of opportunities to go anywhere from there. And I kind of sensed that. And I said, okay, well, let's see if I can transfer. And so I transferred and that's where I learned how to navigate the student loan system. And that's where I found out I was a conservative between that bureaucracy and getting involved in the debate program and getting bounced <laughs> from the school paper, which I desperately wanted to write for, but they wouldn't let me write for. Because um, because they thought you were too conservative? No, not at all. Um, so I transferred, and I thought I discovered this like huge scandal because I couldn't find out what Ball State costs. They said, you know, transfer things and, you know, fill out the FAFSA. Like, FAFSA? What are you talking about? And I, you know, oh, well, there's financial aid. We just need your parents' tax forms. Oh, guess what? That's never going to happen. What tax forms? And so people kept telling me this help was available, and it wasn't. Unless you had parents to help there and do that for you and co-sign for you, how do you do that? And so I was getting frustrated with that, and I went and knocked on the door of the journalism program. And, you know, knock, knock. You don't have any writers for the summer. Can I write about the student loan system and how hard this is? Because I don't think this is right. You know, I thought I, th- I thought I had uncovered a scandal. Yeah. And I was so naive at the time, I didn't realize that school papers largely exist to serve as school propaganda. And of course, they're not going to like let somebody write that says, oh, I have some really negative things to say about your financial aid office. Uh, I didn't know that. But I was determined that someone had to know about this. And I just started talking to people and randomly somebody said, you know, you know, there's there's programs in Washington that would help people like you get started writing. I said, okay, let me see. 
And someone from the Leadership Institute, through an email, I was like, oh, let me know more information about how to be a journalist. And they said, well, we're doing a paper thing out here where conservative students start papers. Would you like to come? I said, well, yeah, I'd like to come, but I'm in Indiana. I have like $20 to my name. They said, no, we'll give you a flight. We'll come out. What? Okay. Was that the first time you were in Washington? It was. Mm -hmm. And I caught the bug. It was, I saw students who were, I mean, kind of taking on the system in the way I saw it. And they didn't need the school to tell them they could have a column. They were doing it all on their own. And I wanted it. I wanted it badly. I started, I bought a website, you know, sitting at a table like this um, at one of those events. And I went back and said, I'm going to write about this. And so then it just kind of took off between the debate team and that and me working 10 million jobs and skipping class so I could feed my website. Um, that's that's how that's I pretty much how, got how I got through college as well. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, the uh, We should point out you were, in addition to having the record for most innings pitched, you also were named an All-American debater by the National Education Debate Association. Yeah, so I did that on my website, and I I didn't do good in my history classes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And and your website took off. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for a small town, like, I I think I got a million hits, and um, what was interesting... A million hits? Yeah, which was a big deal back then. Yeah. In 2005. That's impressive. It might have been me just hitting it a million times. <laughs> um, right. But what was interesting is at the time, so there was a college professor who I thought he's in charge of the student reading program that gave this author $25,000 to come to campus talk. And I thought that was a travesty. Eric Schlosser. Yes. Author that of was a Fast, fast Food, food Nation. Nation. Yeah. yeah, which I'm like... You don't like fast food? I live off that dollar menu right now, sir. Um, but it was more about the cost that they were spending there, whereas I was trying by hook or by crook to get you know, a loan for $5,000. And it's like, I just wanted a Spartan. How, how come this isn't affordable for me? And I can't get the price. And so all that stuff was coming together. And I started writing about that. If you can't that. get the loan, all the more reason to be eating fast food. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I mean, we're also, I wasn't on the, I couldn't afford the cafeteria program. That's for sure. I never had cafeteria food. Gas stations, I mean, that's what you do. And so he was coming to school. But what was interesting is that I, he, the professor that had brought Eric Schlosser to town was an animal rights activist, whatever. He had actually been arrested for trespassing on a local farm. And so I wrote the story about that. Like, that's interesting. Professor had been arrested because he wanted to take pictures of animals factory farming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had taken his picture off the, you know, the listserv, you know, whatever Google that he was on for Ball State and made a wanted poster and put it all over town. Like, wanted, you know, Professor Alves, read the story at bsu.net. And this was my first experience of, like, kind of the stuff that comes at you was that he said because he had a beard and I printed a black and white poster, I was making him out to be a terrorist, which absolutely was not the case. I couldn't afford a color printer. And so I got that as just, you know, kind of this independent just student trying to write about the system and saying, oh, you're making me out to be a racist. And who's paying you? Is the Republican Party paying you? All these weird questions, which I didn't even know I was like fully a Republican. And so all the stuff started coming at me. Um, 
David Horowitz, who's like an activist, mm -hmm. he had been trying to start a chapter of, what is it, Young Americans for whatever his student chapters are. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't involved with that. And so somehow the local paper got a statement from David Horowitz disavowing me <laughs> for making a racist poster. And I was like caught up in all this crazy stuff. But that's what happens. And so to me, it was a, it was a good learning experience. Although I'm kind of like, yeah, I wish the Republican Party would pay me somebody. I'm eating fast food. <laughs> you, uh, well, you had an, obviously had an instinct for how to, um, how to elevate a story. That was something that you intuitively, the wanted posters. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was mad. And I thought, let's. That guy, you know, I think is chairman of the history department. Oh, is he? At uh, Ball State. Do you know him? No, I just it, looked at when I saw that you had put him on a wanted poster. I was curious as to who he was. Yeah, well, actually, you know what was really funny is after it all went down, I went to interview him. And I haven't even thought about this story for a really long time. So I had a tape record. I went and got it at like a Best Buy, the cheapest one for like $15. I, I don't remember. But it was, a, it was a big expense for me at the time because I was like, I'm going to go talk to this guy. Like, you're accusing me of this, like, let's go. He had office hours. Like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to write There's a story a about it. Debater that you were. Yes. And I walked in, and he he was ready. And he had this whole, like, recording her job. He said, I'm recording you. <laughs> but what's funny, and I don't really, you know, I started talking about the program, and then he wanted, he wanted to light into me. Um, and I think, you know, atmospherics, stuff I didn't even know about, racial tensions that were happening to him, I, you know, he wanted to vent at me. And so when he started yelling, he threw a book down and he turned his recorder off. But I left my recorder on. And so I had all this great audio <laughs> of him just losing it. And so... It was yeah, a story, huh? It was a story. But I really just played the tape. You know, once uh -huh. I put it up and had to figure out how to upload an MP3 to my really hooker-by-crook website. So yeah, uh, that my, was the my... beginning. Our engineer, Zane, is smiling now, all these tech, technology references. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking his language. Um, so you must have been really popular with the administration there. Not at Ball all. State. Not at all. <laughs> you, um, but you got through it. Yeah. I mean, but it's kind of the story of my life. Like, take on the establishment wherever you go. I mean, how else do you end up working for Ted Cruz? Right. We'll get to that. <laughs> have, first, talk about how you got to Washington. You went to work for Human Events yes. right out of college. Well, what happened was, so Leadership Institute, because, you know, I was, I went to one of their startup paper groups, and I guess I was one of the rare students who actually did it. Yeah. And then they said, well, would you like to come for an internship and you just tell people about your experience? Because there was a lot of things that go on with doing that kind of thing. And I was like, that'd be great. Sure. Packed up all my bags and went. My plan was like, I'm coming to D.C. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's that's where I'm going. And through the course of the summer, just talking to college kids, living there, they have a little house nearby where people could stay. They paid you 200 bucks a month. I thought that was great. <laughs> and uh, Tim Carney, who writes for the Washington Examiner now, came to do a talk. And I just kind of went up to him after and I said, you know, I really, what you do is really interesting. And he said, well, you know what? I used to be this reporter at Human Events and I know they have an opening. Do you want me to, you know, I'll let them know. I said, that'd be great having no idea what I was getting myself into. And 
at an interview and I didn't know anything about in terms of like reading the Wall Street Journal and watching Meet the Press and I had no clue. I had no cable TV. I had no subscription. I had no family that went into it. And all I did in the interview was say, this is what I did on campus. This is why I think I'm a conservative because I care about transparency and fiscal responsibility and want people to have a fair shot at these bureaucratic systems. And the last question that the editor asked me is that, okay, if we give you a tape recorder, do you think you could walk up to Hillary Clinton and ask her a hard question? I said, absolutely. And they said, you got the job. And before I knew it, they gave me a tape recorder that was a little bit better than I had with Dr. Elvis. And they sent me to the Hill. And that was that. What was your experience like? You you sort of self-identified as a conservative while you were on campus. Um, did you have, uh, I mean, campuses tend to be more liberal environments. I mean, so yeah. did you have a group of friends who, or, or was most most of that your friendships uh, outside of all of that? Yeah. I mean, what what did what did the other kids say? I mean, I never. I don't think I had the whole. It, I mean, it's a big thing. Oh, conservatives are on a third on campus. I didn't have that experience really. Um, a because I was dis- disconnected from campus life because I was always working ten other jobs. You know, waitressing at the library, whatever. I wasn't, like, class was almost an afterthought. And also, I went to school in Indiana. So I don't, I think it was largely more conservative than, you know, mm-hmm. say here. Right, right, Or right. other places. Yeah. And so there was that tension. But the tension I experienced in writing at Ball State, I think, was largely in me just challenging people mm-hmm. and not just going along with the program. So you... You were a year into your tenure at Human Events, and in 2006, I could probably do the math that you were 24 years old or yeah. something. And you you wrote a book uh, for uh, Regnery, which is a publishing house that's noted for publishing right. Dinesh D'Souza and people like that. But you wrote a book called... Um, uh, the vast right-wing conspiracies dossier on Hillary Clinton. So tell me about that. So I was working as a Hill reporter and had access to senators, of which Hillary Clinton was one at the time. And the publisher actually approached me with this idea and said, we want to do a book about Hillary Clinton. Do you think, you know, could you put something together? Here's the title and I said, yeah, but here's my thing. I was 24 years old. I said, I'm not going to do a deep dive into what happened with Bill and Monica. I'm not interested. But if you will let me do a book about her 10 years as senator and what she's done here and how Republicans would potentially campaign against her for her expected run, that's what I can do. And the first chapter of the book and what I actually had interviewed her about were her foreign um, donations through the Clinton Foundation, which did become a big issue. And I take a amount of pride is that the first couple chapters delved on that. And I think about six weeks after my book came out, the Washington Post wrote a front page story about the foreign donations to the charity that were, I think were largely mm-hmm. picked up on the stuff I was raising there. I mean, that happens a lot, like kind of a fringe type 
activist partisan write something and then the mainstream press picks up on it. Do you, is that what you consider yourself a fringe? No, uh, not anymore. Um, but it was but a then, 24 wheel. It was a, it was a valid the reason, story. The reason I ask you is this, because you've written this book, which we'll talk about called, called Gaslighting, which, which talked about this whole process that, and, and particularly about how Trump uh, uh, utilizes it. But it, yeah. it, it, it's part of it is sort of propagating conspiracy theories, yeah, which which wasn't Trump didn't invent that. He may no. have perfected it and taken it to a different level. I mean, do you look back at at your young self and say, did I unwittingly uh, participate in that? I don't believe I participate in it. Do I think there was a lot of people that wanted me to? Like the story I just told about that book. Could I have written a very different book that was not on the level? Probably. And would have sold well, probably. Huh? Would have sold pretty well. Yeah, probably better. Mm -hmm. But even though I was opposed to Hillary Clinton on a lot of policy reasons, I wasn't going to go into that stuff. And so... That's why it focused on what she did as a U.S. senator, on her own merits. Because even as a woman, I believed if she's going to campaign for president as the first female presidential candidate, let's look at what she's done on her own two feet. And there was plenty there. I mean, she had a lot of like weird donations from the Corning Company and earmarks that went to them, which never came out. But I, I was fascinated by it because I always care about following the money. Um. But fair yeah. to say, fair to say, you could follow the money, though, uh, relative to a lot of people on Capitol Hill, Republican and Democrat. Oh, sure, and yeah, write that's the same always... kind of story. Um, oh, yeah, in the age of earmarks, absolutely. Although the thing with Hillary, which I do think hung her up, is that they were taking all these international <laughs> donations, raking it in, and I'm not the only person to make this critique. When she went on to become Secretary of State, I mean, like it's very problematic to have this revolving door of money and interest and for the public to not know you're, you're only representing the public. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it has a lot to do with the breakdown of trust. And, you know, I think she's a decent Secretary of State, but that baggage is always with her because of the Clinton Foundation. Yeah, my, and, I, you know, my, my yeah. main question really is less about what you did and more about sort of the environment that yeah. has grown up there is a kind of conspiracy mm -hmm. industry, absolutely. Uh, you know, and it, and it, you you can push back on me if this is not right, but a lot of it emanates from the right. Mm -hmm. and well, this is part of my beef. Um, you know, when I came to DC, I didn't, I wasn't involved in this political world. Like, I actually believe all the stuff. Like, oh, we need journalists with a conservative perspective to actually do journalism, and. That's what I came to D.C. to do. That's what I thought I was doing. And I did that. But there was people around me that weren't interested, for sure. And I think all of that has completely fallen apart under Trump. I wrote a piece for Politico after Trump was elected. You know, I used to do Sean Hannity's show all the time before I went to work for Ted Cruz. And, you know, this whole idea that you need to have conservatives in the media and do all this. no. What happened was someone like Sean Hannity, who railed against this, just wanted the chance to suck up to his own president. And so there's a big disillusionment there. And I always knew there was the entertainment factor with that. Um, 
But I feel yeah, some people very don't rush. Much... I mean, a lot of people have done very well with it. Yes. Yeah. And they've navigated it. Rush, you know, I followed very closely through the primaries to see how he navigated that. And it's not journalism. Maybe they, and it makes me sad to think about this, but I do think it's partially true. Maybe Republicans and conservatives can only be honest as a minority. And I, I wonder that because in the age of Trump and watching them get the majority and really lose the honesty and focus, maybe we can only be effective as a minority party. And I hate to say that, but what other conclusion can I draw from what's happened to the two things I really care about, conservative journalism and conservative media? Um, but you left journalism uh, and you went to work in yeah. government. What yeah. made you, you – you had done a stints at, at, uh, at Human Events and Glamour Magazine, Town Hall, and then the Washington Times, yeah. and then you uh-huh. you you decided to go inside. Yeah, I didn't – that was one of those things that came up. I never thought I would – I always wanted to work on the Hill and get that experience, but I never thought there'd be the right person. You know, I always think, like, you know, I miss I miss that boat. Because I didn't go to the hill immediately when I was, you know, 21 years old and do the internship and climb the ladder. And because, you know, I had been doing some cable TV and, you know, I kind of had been establishing my voice as an outsider conservative type. And someone from Jim DeMint, the former senator from South Carolina's office, called and said, you know what? Um, Jim DeMint is really about to amp up his profile. He's frustrated. He wants to do work in seeking out other candidates who can change Washington, and we're going to need writing help. Would Are you interested? And I thought, you know, there's probably only two people I would ever go work for, and that was Tom Coburn and Jim DeMint. And I thought about it for about a day. So, yeah, yes, yes, yes. And so I went and did that, and that's just as he was establishing a PAC outside of his Senate duties called the Senate Conservatives Fund because he was so upset with the trajectory of the Republican Party that they weren't getting new blood. And the people that he endorsed were Rand Paul, Marco Rubio, um, Mike Lee, and that Pat Toomey in that freshman class. And he caused holy hell in the Republican yeah, he was, Party. he was to the Congress what you were to the administration at Paul Yeah, Paul's so State. they found the right fit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that, did you enjoy that part of it? That Yeah, sort of, absolutely. I don't. In this day and age, you don't want to say bomb throwing because it has implications. Which is so funny because he's such a mild-mannered guy. You know, he is very gentlemanly, quiet, but he just had he had enough. He irritated the hell out of everybody. Yep. Um, and then he left to go to the Heritage Foundation. Yeah, yeah, he was done after and, that. And, and then you moved on to, as you mentioned earlier, Ted Cruz. Yeah, and that's really funny. So uh, DeMint was successful in helping bring new blood to Washington, but had made his life pretty miserable for himself, I think. And so when the opportunity to join the Heritage Foundation came up, lead that. And, and that was kind of a dream of when his. When you say he made his life miserable for himself, uh, I, you know, someone who you haven't written that finally about is Mitch McConnell. I, I assume that that was part of his misery, right? Oh, completely, completely. Um, it's Capitol Hill is a place that does thrive on relationships, and if you go against the grain, it's a miserable place. If you don't love Washington— and Dement, you know, like a lot of people I work with, that the career isn't the end game. He'd much rather be home in South Carolina, you know? Like, you've got to have a family grounding. And he had that. And so when you're away from your family 
four nights a week, just getting pummeled by the media and your Republican establishment bosses, Mitch McConnell, you know, being embarrassed, you know, being leaked things in the press constantly, you got to deal with. Um, being president of the Heritage Foundation is pretty nice. And so he he decided it was time to go, you know, mission accomplished. On the McConnell point, uh-huh. um, you know, from a Republican standpoint, and I have my own issues with him uh, uh, from my experiences in the Obama administration, um, but they would make the argument that he's been a pretty effective leader, right? He's maintained control. Yeah, if you care about power, yes. If your end game is power at all times, very effective. Um, in terms of getting anything done, um, solving the deficit, balancing the budget, anything that might actually make the country better from my perspective, he's a miserable failure. What did you think about the on this issue of, I mean, it's in- interesting you talk about transparency and fiscal integrity as the two things that sort of get you going. Um, on the fiscal integrity front, what did you think about the tax cut that uh, that Trump and yeah. the Republicans? I mean, I like tax to- cuts, but you got to have spending cuts too. And so that's, to me, where the lost opportunity for transformational change. Do you not buy the the uh, dynamic scoring idea that somehow these tax cuts going to? I mean, yeah, I buy. Such... I also cross. I don't. My, by the I way, cross my I, fingers and hope it'll work out. Which do. is most people cross their fingers and hope it comes true. You don't know that's going to be true. That's I, a, not, not a great way to make policy, though. No, and that's what I'm saying. The chance for transformational change with a full Republican White House in Congress. If you're not going to make corresponding spending cuts with the tax cuts to get the country on a firm path, then what's the point? And people say, well, what happened, Paul Ryan? I said, listen, there's no appetite for, there's no constituency for spending cuts. And so I think the calculation was, well, we're not going to take money from people and just send it down the black hole of government. We'll just cut taxes and what happens, happens. And and where would you make the spending cuts? Because, you know, people, I think people don't Mm-hmm. Recognize how small the discretionary sort yeah. of domestic. No, it's with entitlements. I budgets. mean, but there's. I think there's very easy so things Social you Security, can do, Medicare. like raising the age and mm-hmm. you know ramping that back a little bit. Yes, because you have to. Like my brother, we talked about early in the program. You have to make sure those programs are there for people that need it, and I don't think those programs are going to be there on this path. You know, my grandparents depend on those programs. Like, it's not sustainable, and so if we just keep overloading it. It's, it's going to bust. What about the idea of letting people buy into Medicare? I think it's interesting. Here, here's, here's why. So there was a whole debate over repealing Obamacare, which I was I for. was witness to yeah, 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 which there's opening. But now Obamacare has been on the books for 10 years. We're going on nine. Yeah, so I mean, it's basically been it's in, not going in rea- reality for years. Yeah, it's four a fact years, of life yeah. now, right? And so for anyone to campaign on that now when Republicans didn't do anything about it earlier, where are people going to go? Republicans have not given them a better option. I was waiting for, you know, I'm on the individual market, Obamacare for my family to join on the bronze plan, $1,200 a month with a $6,000 a person deductible. That's outrageous. You know, we're not a family that has health problems. We're happy to pay a certain amount, but $1,200 a month is too yeah, much. Yeah, you may be. I mean, yeah. I come from a family where we didn't have yeah. health problems, and I have, and then suddenly I had a seven-year-old child yeah. with, with epilepsy and uncontrolled seizures, yeah. and we almost went bankrupt. Absolutely. And we couldn't get, and because she had a pre-existing condition, we couldn't get other insurance. Mm-hmm. And that's a, 
No, that's reality that a lot of people. No, face. these realities I, I are. There's, there's got to be a you never place. have to face any. No, no, of that. and I, I, I complete. But there's got to be a place for people to go where they can get something that is a value. Yes, if you're back against the wall, you'll pay anything, a hundred percent. And so my point was, Republicans, we've been making the argument. Once you allow people to buy state across state lines, there'll be better options. I haven't seen those better options come to fruition. And so the thing is, people have to go. So are you still on the Affordable Care Act policy? No, I haven't. I have a Christian MediShare program, which is the so-called junk insurance. But it's $300 a month for the family. And every time we go to the doctor, we just pay out of pocket. We get vaccines. We get totally gouged. It's when my son had to get vaccines for school, it's $800. Okay. But that's cheaper than Obamacare at $1,200 a month. And then we just bank and do HSA you know, what do we do? And also keep your fingers crossed, like on the fiscal integrity front. Yeah. Yeah. And so the MediShare thing or the buying into Medicare, I find interesting because there's no good options. And so if the math can work, if it's an actual program where people pay their way into the system, I don't have a huge problem Because a lot of the gap is people, I mean, where, where, where it hits the hardest is in that sort of 50 to 65. Yes, and that's where all the costs are. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. um, who, by the way, he won his reelection. He was, uh, you <laughs> were there kidding. when he uh, he did win that. We're going to talk about that because I'm interested in your observations about that. He um, he led a, a uh, filibuster. Probably you were there on his staff when he did Oh, yeah. That was my uh, second week back from maternity leave with my second son, which was great (laughs) because it was was all night. And I was fine with staying up. Everybody's like, oh, do you need to sleep on the couch? No, I haven't slept for two years. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have your son with you? No, he was at home. Yeah. So, um, well, then maybe since you had these small children, you were the the one who decided, who came up with the idea. No, I did not. That he should read. No, I did not. Green eggs and ham during his filibuster. No, I was I was prepping actual stuff, and then that was it. They loved that idea. Yeah. Well, uh, it was an interesting rendition of it. I'll say that. But um, it was what's interesting to me about this campaign because one of the one of the organizing premises of uh, of the Affordable Care Act was people with pre-existing conditions should be treated. Yeah, should and not be discriminated against. I don't think that against. part was debated. It was the exchanges that were the real point of contention. Although those came actually from the Heritage Foundation oh, in know. the first place. I know. I mean, the idea of setting up these competitive marketplaces. But um, but I was interested interested to see uh, him campaign and actually I think he may have even run ads, but about how he want he absolutely supports people with pre existing conditions not being discriminated against and stuff. And it's, it struck me that the debate has shifted quite a bit in, yeah. uh, in, in eight years, you know? Although I, working on Capitol Hill, the debate over pre-existing conditions was not one people wanted to have. Um, the problem I think is people you, can't, realized, you can't detach it, you know what I, I mean? Know. It's hard. The, believe me, I know, and those were the, the ins- fights we had in the office. Like, why wouldn't we do this? Well, you have to get rid of that if you want to have competitive programs. I mean, I've been in a million meetings going around that and question. And on the White House side, but I can nobody, tell you that, yeah. um, you know, it's not that easy to create a system that is a private system yeah, no, in which insurance, insurance companies are willing to accept people with pre-existing 
conditions, and that's why the Affordable Care Act was this very finely calibrated thing. Yeah, and, and that's why and I think it, the ultimate way of breaking through all this nature. is at least getting a system where people can go to a doctor and get a fair price for treatment. My biggest beef, you go to the doctor, first question is, where's your insurance card? Well, I have money because I'm in the system now where you try to pay your own way. Where's your insurance card? What does it cost for a doctor? They don't want to tell you. They send you to billing. They send you to a nurse. They make you feel like mm-hmm. dirt. And it's like, well, I can pay the $500. What, what is it going to be? Nobody can tell you what it will cost to see a doctor. You're back to your student loan. I, it, absolutely. Financing it's a, it's amazing state. what a defining experience that was. But yeah. you run around it all no, the listen, time. No, I, listen, there, there's yeah. so many yeah. problems yeah. with the, the healthcare system, yep. and that is uh, and that is one of them. Um, so tell me about Cruz, and you left before he uh, entered mm-hmm. the race for president. Uh, yeah, we got him launched. So, so I came in. It's funny. So DeMint was leaving Congress in 2012. Cruz is coming in. I thought at that point, I just try to go back to media. That's where my passion was. You know, I wanted to, you know, got my government experience, check that box. Let me find a way to go back, um, do writing, whatever it is. Let me see what happened. And then, you know, these Texans came in. I said, Amanda, we really like what you did for Senator DeMint. Um, you know, Ted Cruz might want somebody in his communication shop like you. What do you think? And I said, I don't know. Freshman senators are really boring. I really, I don't want to work for somebody who's not going to do anything. I mean, I was kind of high on my horse about it. <laughs> and they said, Amanda. Well, Texans have to appreciate someone who's high on their horse. <laughs> yeah. Right? And they said, would you just give it two or three months? And at that, I was five months pregnant at the time. I'm like, well, I got the fine. I'll just, you know, see what happens. Let me give it till the summer. And they came in ready to rock, you know. That January, the first couple of weeks, he was picking fights with Chuck Hagel. Uh, John McCain was calling him Wacko Bird. Um, and I, I, I knew, okay, th- there's something special going on here. And, um, yeah, so I was in the And did office. you know that he was – then was it obvious that he was going to run for president? It wasn't obvious, but I think there was always the <clears> intention <throat> to – our job as staff was to preserve the option. Mm-hmm. Don't screw up. Because this is a guy who might run for president someday. I didn't necessarily think it'd be in 2016. But we were kind of on our best behavior as staff to say, this is somebody special to the conservative movement. Make sure he's on the right path kind of thing. Um, you're furring. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm thinking. But uh, yeah. I, 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 don't, I wanted to ask you because you said make sure he doesn't screw up. Did you ultimately view the filibuster as a positive or a negative thing? Was that a screw up? Because, he, you know, there are a lot of people who are very critical of it. It mm-hmm. didn't end well for the Republican Party. No, although it didn't end up as we all anticipated. I mean, this is always a thing. You think if you do everything... Right. And, you know, we disagree with this, but we there was a movement there that wanted to make a stand on the healthcare issue that was terrified of government run healthcare and the cost and everything else. There was all that energy. And so the House wanted to do something. And Cruz kind of got in front of that parade and said, OK, if you guys don't do this funding bill, we'll send it over here. And we kind of thought once we did all that, ultimately, Mitch McConnell would see this is where the energy of the conservative movement is, this is what Republicans want to do, and then we'll find a way to make a deal. Whether it be, you know, whatever. Like, once we get to this point, we can work together to figure that out. That was not the case. 
we got to that point and they just were willing to cut out his knees and say, you're on your own buddy. Mm -hmm. And that's not the only problem I have with Mitch McConnell, but stuff like that where he was not, this is why part of the reason I think we ended up with Trump because people couldn't figure out where the base was at and figure out how to lead it into a landing path. And if that was our mistake, we couldn't get it to a soft landing. We thought we get to that point of the filibuster went on for what, 13 days or something. Mm -hmm. And there was no coming together to figure out the landing spot. Mm -hmm. And that was the problem. Can I ask you, do you, how much, you've been very critical of Trump on the uh, birtherism thing, but the birtherism thing was broader than just Trump. And it, it, it occurs to me to ask you how much you think the resistance to Obama was was rooted in the sort of otherness, race, and so on. So when the Tea Party started, that was in the summer of wake 2009. of the yeah. bailouts. Yeah. The Tea Party became the bailouts. Oh, it wasn't because of Obama. There was that anger there that started. And the I was bailout there for that. of Wall uh, the Wall Street, Street bailouts, mm-hmm. yes, yes. And Bush, it wasn't it wasn't mm-hmm. about Obama. It was mm-hmm. about Bush and like, why are you doing this? And so I understood all that and I was there for it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's very there, were of, there were a lot of Democrats who were opposed to that as well, actually. Yes. And but then and I do think a lot of that was pure. It had the right intentions. And so the Republican outpouring that started in the wake of that was focused on the Constitution and fiscal responsibility. But slowly but surely, there were other forces that came into play there. And I saw this a few times. Um, I had worked with um, people at FreedomWorks, and they were doing a lot of stuff at the Tea Party rallies. And there were people that were showing up with signs. I'm sure you saw them. Obama's, Hitler, Mm -hmm. the mustache. And there was a contingent of us, like, policing it. Get those out of here. This is not what we're about. But that, that, like, to me, that was always in the background. And I think good people during 2010, 2014 could keep that at bay. But when Trump came on the scene, that stuff got unleashed because he played to it. It's always been there. But, you know, and there's been cycles of this where, you know, National Review had to go against the Birchers. There's been people in the Republican conservative movement that have had to beat that back. And now there's nobody beating it back anymore and so that that's been my observation the um the the but there were outbursts well you wrote a you wrote a piece um uh or you were defending you defended sarah palin Mm. during the 2000 i like sarah palin when she came on the scene i was so but at her rallies and at some of the McCain rallies, there was some of this. Yep. Obama's not. A, yep. He's he's not. He's not an American. Absolutely. And John McCain an had Arab. that moment where he's, he said, "No, ma'am." Yeah. You know. Which was, I thought, was maybe his, his best, best moment. moment in the two thousand and uh, and. Uh, but yeah, that's always been campaign. there, and it's listen. Republicans have their problems. Liberals and Democrats have their problems. I mean, there's environmental people that want to go blow up buildings and things like that. Everybody has their own set of issues to deal with. But the race issue is one that's unique to Republicans. And it's coming to a head now. I mean, you can't look at the stuff that's happening 
in the Mississippi race. I mean, it keeps happening. As we sit here today, they're voting in Mississippi. It's ended in a very ugly way um, around the issue of race and confronting Mm -hmm. the legacy of race that, you know, Mississippians know so well. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it comes back to, I mean, the Charlottesville moment. Donald Trump will never be able to undo what he said about both sides there. Mm-hmm. When there's people dressing up as Nazis in the streets, there's no both sides to it. And so from that moment, and there was other stuff with Obama and the frog stuff, the anti-Semitism, they've been given a green light. And I don't see any guardrails within Republicans. A lot of people have just thrown up their hands and left because it's hard to do all the time. You get no thanks for it. A lot of people say, oh, you know, I'm kind of in the never Trump contingency. And that comes from an article I wrote during the campaign saying, I don't think a good conservative would ever work for Trump or anyone who's endorsed him because of their bad judgment. And this was before Charlottesville. That was just mm-hmm. the way that he conducted himself on the campaign. They also and, they also made you an issue in the campaign. Yeah, that happened. Um, you know, you, which was really ugly. Yep. And uh, suggesting that you had a, uh, uh, an intimate relationship with Ted Cruz along yeah. with a bunch of other women. Yeah. Um, tell me how you reacted to that. It was such a blindside because at that point, you know, I had not been working for Ted Cruz. And so we didn't really go through that. And so I worked with Ted Cruz, first in the Senate, and then Jeff Rowe, the campaign manager he had, he wanted everyone to move to Houston to work on the campaign. At that point, I had two kids, both under two. I have, was not going to move my family to Houston for 18 months. Just, I wasn't going to do it, um, even though I really like working for the office, because my goal was always to go back to media at some point in time. So to me, that was a natural departure. Okay, we'll get him launched. We'll get Ted Cruz through his book tour. July 1st, I'll leave the office. So that's what happened. CNN I happened to come together. They picked me up right away in August, or July and August. So I had like a month off. And so I was just doing commentary on the air, and naturally was critical of Trump. Um, you know, his escalator speech, oddly the stuff that sounds so quaint now, his support of eminent domain, the comments that he made about wanting to embrace torture, uh, that to me is just red flags. This guy should not be commander in chief. Like you, you wouldn't even say things about making the military do these things that are against their own military law. Mm-hmm. Red line. And so I had a pretty clear view early on. And... I think I I became a target. I wrote a piece in March of that year of 2015 because I saw people endorsing him that were elected officials. And I said, this is is not good. These people are, it was Chris Collins and Duncan Hunter, two congressmen who recently won re-election who are now indicted. Yes. Um, Those were his first endorsers. They may end up serving a a term of a different sort sometime soon. Yeah. (laughs) And so I wrote a piece just kind of laying a marker down as a warning and almost as a plea to my fellow friends, don't work for these people. Their judgment is And so bad. you think this was retribution for that? Yeah, I do. Well, I, I can't say it, but that was my never Trump piece. Never work for him, never support him, never endorse him. People don't do this. You, you wrote this book, Gaslighting, that came out this year. T- talk about what gaslighting is. Yeah. So I explained it to people. Like, imagine you're walking down the street. And it's a beautiful day. And someone says, how is the weather today? And you look at the sky and it's a beautiful day. They said, no, there's a storm coming. We look up. It's a beautiful day. No, no, no. Clouds are coming. It's going to rain. There's tornadoes. Duck and take cover now. And one of two things happens. 
And maybe there's a CNN panel that comes to debate you and tell you why you're wrong. So you either succumb to it and say, you know what? Okay, I'll just go inside. I'll go inside with you. It might be bad. This is a safer thing to do. Or maybe you get a little hysterical and say, no, you're crazy. Stop. I can see the sky. And then you blow up and they say, look at her. She's lost her mind. That's gaslighting. And Trump mm-hmm. does it on a daily basis. And how much is the media... Uh, uh responsible for playing that game well someone who's observed a lot of it i mean the conflict is enticing to an audience and it's sort of like social media too algorithm doesn't care where the clicks come from they don't care about democracy in the end and at some point someone has to take responsibility as a human with human judgment to say this is what I will allow on my platform because I believe it's for the greater good. You can have a lot of debate, but once you succumb to the mob, democracy becomes the mob. And when you, this is a you 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 paint a a a bleak picture of where we are now. Mm-hmm. Where do you think we're going? And where do you think the Republican Party is This going? is a question I get all the time. What will Republicans do? And I don't want to be dire. Nothing. It is Trump's party now. I work for the guy, Ted Cruz, who blew up the convention saying vote your conscience as a way of saying I will not endorse Trump. And, and then ultimately he, and he came to heal. Yeah, he was he was hugging him uh, during this re-election campaign, which tells you that he thought he needed him. Yes. Do you think he actually feels that sense of affection that he expressed for Trump? Well, I think because I work for Cruz, I think if you parse his statements very closely, you will see that he's never taken back the things that he said during the campaign. But Republican base voters do. If you're a Republican that supports Trump or maybe not, you see everyone coming after him. You see the Democrats. You see the media after him all the time. Justifiably so, in my mind. But you don't want to see the Republicans attacked him, too. You have no tolerance for it. You just want to get stuff done. Give me my judge. Give me my tax cut. Secure the border. Like, can you guys just help him? Because everyone else is coming after him. Can you at least, like, get him in line? That's where the base is, even among skeptical Mm -hmm. people. There's no tolerance for a family infighting. And so the people either find a way to work with Trump or you leave. Like Paul Ryan or Jeff Flake. You leave. You Were you surprised that that race in Texas was so close? Yeah, I thought I thought Cruz was going to win by five. Mm-hmm. And it he, was two. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, activating new voters. The biggest constituency in America is not Republican or Democrats. People don't vote. If you can find a way to get people who don't vote to the polls, you're going to win. And what is it about Beto O'Rourke that, that, that accomplished that? I mean, there's the fresh face. He campaigned. I mean, lights out. Every He was on all the time. Um, he was a charismatic figure. He could give a speech. And this is part of the things I think Democrats, because people say, what are Republicans going to do? Like, nothing. That's going to happen. So it is up to Democrats to try to stop this. And to compete with Trump, you have to put on a little bit of a show. Beto can put on a show. He had big rallies. He could get people excited. I mean, and I don't say this as a bad thing. Barack Obama could get people excited yeah. to show up. You yeah. have to. He also went everywhere. Catch, Barack yeah. Obama went everywhere. Yeah, it's not just going on TV, but you. But have, I mean, but I'm I'm saying that yeah. to make the point that Beto. Mm-hmm. He did go everywhere. He could went everywhere yep. in Texas, and yeah, he retired as a congressman so he could focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, which was, if you're going to try to win, 
it takes that kind of dedication. But you also have to be able to capture the imagination. And there's no perfect formula for that, but he has a little bit of that spark. And it's unique and special. Obama had it. Do you see him as a presidential candidate? I see him as a VP. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't think... And we will see. People prove themselves on the campaign, as you know, and they grow. Maybe he could. Um, He can raise money. I don't think he has the depth, but I think he'd be a good VP. Why not? So before we go, um, you wrote a piece that turned out to be prescient just two years too early about what women voters oh, yeah. <laughs> were going to do in 2016. And um, let me see if I can find the, uh, you said, I, I want to ask the men leading the GOP many questions, some questions. Why didn't you defend women yeah. from this raging sexist, especially after so many Republican women for so many years eagerly defended the party from charges of sexism? You must make us out for fools. And you predicted at the end of this piece, uh, I'm one of the many Repu- women in the Republican Party left behind in this election. The GOP is about to learn a hard lesson when it comes to women's vote, defend us or lose us. Well, it didn't really happen I know, in 2016, my- <laughs> I- ironically, with a, with a female candidate on yeah. the Democratic side. But it did happen in the midterm elections. There was a 20-point gender gap, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and women voted 59-39 in these exit polls uh, for Democratic candidates. Do you think that's a, a, a permanent state of affairs so long as Trump is there? What does the Republican Party have to do to get these women back? Well, it's funny. Trump had a rally recently to kind of burnish his credentials with women. And the only women that would get on stage to support him were either paid by him, like Kellyanne Conway, or had the last name Trump, like Ivanka. So if that's their women's outreach get lost. That's not going to work. And it all comes down to the fact, I don't think he can do this. I think it's like Charlottesville. It's access Hollywood tape. If a condition of being part of the Republican party is defending that as locker room talk, which was him bragging about assault on tape, whether he did or not, he was bragging about that he could do it. If that's a condition of being a woman in good standing with the Republican party, you're not going to have women. That's just the end. And look at what happened in the midterm election. Some of the women who would not go there, Mia Love, Barbara Comstock, they're gone. And they were great candidates. They were good people. They were the kind of good campaigners, do everything right. People the Republican Party should have as women. He taunted them after the election. I know. And I think that was very deliberate because he wanted to teach them a lesson. You speak out against me. And in part, it's I, I think he is smart because he realizes that any kind of primary challenge to him in 2020 can be damaging, even if the primary challenger is not successful. And so I think they're obsessed with rooting out Republicans who are not 100% on board. They're obsessed with rooting out voices of never Trump Republicans like me. I mean, I've seen it. It is a thing. And strategically, I understand it um, because having a Republican Party that is not united going into 2020 does not bode well for him. Do you think there will be a primary challenge? I mean, John Kasich is like begging for the draft Kasich movement to materialize. It's not happening. Flake? No, he doesn't have the nerve. Um, it's funny. Flake Flake wrote a pretty decent book mm-hmm. um, talking about his problem with the Republican Party. And then every interview he does, he falls flat. He doesn't make the argument in person that he does on paper. And so to me, it's... This is a non-starter. I think you want someone else to do the job, and he would enthusiastically support them if someone else would do it. Well, Amanda, 
I look. F- we're going to have an interesting couple of years together. <laughs> yes, yes. I look forward to uh, watching this whole the great pageant of democracy uh, <laughs> over the next two years yes. move forward. And it's always a pleasure to be with you. And thank you so much for being a fellow at the Institute of Politics. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.